We back in the lab, we making some noise, so go turn your decibels up. Yeah. Black skin, white coat, oh no, who was nice as us? Made Jim a sin, really told us no limits, so we about to take this up. Went from mixing in the kitchen to the lab, and now, now I can make this up. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We shining a light on the people of color to show them how fly it is. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We back in the lab with white coats on our back, trying to show what time it is. Hey. And welcome back to the Be Scientists Podcast, a podcast hosted by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or B-Side. When you hear this noise, that is our in-podcast citation. Please go to b-side.org, bachelor's B-Scientist, to see all our citations ever. I am Jordan Chapman, and as always, we have... Jana Carpenter. And today, we have two guests on B-Scientists. First, making her B-Scientist debut, we have... B-Side Secretary, Janae Vasharazin. How are you, Janae? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me today. Of course, of course. Today, we also have a special guest. We have another neuroscientist, Dr. Theanne Griffith, who is author of The Magnificent Makers and has also appeared on NPR Shortwave and is an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. How are you, Dr. Griffith? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Of course. So we have two neuroscientists. So Janae, you're going to start off first. Um, Can you tell us what neuroscience is? So I like to just give a general definition. It's the study of the nervous system. So like functions of your central nervous system, like in your brain, but also the peripheral nervous system. Cool. So what's the difference between the two? So kind of just location. It has your spinal cord, still has neurons. So does your brain. It's just the central would be solely your brain, and then the peripheral nervous system would be the rest of the nerves in your body. The spinal cord is actually part of your peripheral, your central nervous system, excuse me. Your peripheral nervous system has all of those sensory neurons. And I stepped in because that's actually what I study. (laughs) So like dorsal ganglion neurons, trigeminal neurons, your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, I guess, I don't even know. You have, have an enteric nervous system. I'm assuming that's part of the peripheral as well. Um, but your spinal cord is actually central, technically. Yeah. <laughs> it's always left out. Probably feels very I lonely there in your back. <laughs> I only focus on the brain itself. Like, and so I never have to think about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue to ask, Janae, what, what do you study? So um, specifically, I study autism spectrum disorder. So we use a stem cell derived neuron model in order to look at neurogenesis and how it can be infected by like viral or environmental influences along with like CRISPR genome editing of autism risk genes. Nice. Those are a lot of things that I don't understand. So (laughs) I have a a lot of questions, but we'll move on and I'll ask Dr. Griffith. uh, You kind of mentioned just a second ago, but what do you study? Yeah, so I'm a sensory neuroscientist, and right now our lab is most interested in understanding how the mammalian nervous system encodes thermal sensations in both health and disease. And so just to break that down a little bit, as I mentioned, I study this group of sensory neurons called dorsal root ganglion neurons, and they are peripheral sensory neurons that innervate various targets, but one of the main peripheral targets that they innervate is our skin. And so in our skin, they detect bodily sensations like, you know, touch, temperature, pain, itch, 
all of those things. And we're specifically at the moment focusing on the group of sensory neurons that encode temperature. So we want to know how temperature is encoded normally. You know, that's pretty kind of one of these basic fundamental questions that I think can almost get overlooked and or underappreciated, but it's actually really important that we know what temperature it is when we go outside, right? You know, we think about um, the very unfortunate cases when people have too much to drink and then they don't, aren't able to detect temperature in the same way and can suffer hypothermia. So that's kind of a pretty clear example of why it is just so important that we understand better how temperature is encoded. And then additionally, from the translational side of things, thermal hypersensitivity is a very common feature of various um, neurological disorders, including, for example, chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. So for some patients treated with certain chemotherapy drugs, cold especially becomes very painful. So you can imagine opening up a refrigerator and that kind of gust of cool air that normally would feel pleasant, especially like on a hot summer day. For people that have cold hypersensitivity or cold allodynia, that is painful and it hurts badly. Um, And badly enough that they'll want to stop taking that chemotherapy medicine. So that's broadly the, the topic that I study and why I think it's important. And I'll briefly say we use a combination of electrophysiology, pharmacology, molecular profiling, genetically modified animals, and behavioral analyses to address these kinds of questions. Do you have a question, Janelle? Really cool. (laughs) Yeah, um, there's one thing I always ask, I feel like anything dealing with biological sampling, do you have a a specific model organism that you use in this Yeah, we're, we design. primarily use uh, mice at the moment um, just because they allow for the genetic manipulation so we can decide, you know, we can figure out which proteins or which ion channels are involved um, in the, this transmission process. And I will say my background is actually in ion channel biophysics and ion channel physiology, pharmacology. So a lot of my work, even though I'm working kind of at the sensory neuroscience level, I'm really interested in how specific ion channels are contributing to the processing of this sensory information. And mice are just really easy. You can knock stuff out. Things have been knocked out for like 30 (laughs) years in mice, although CRISPR is changing that. So we're getting some fun new model organisms that could be tested. Um, But for now, we primarily use mouse and mouse DRGs, although we're looking into getting our hands on some human DRGs to be able to move closer, you know, especially for our studies on pain and whatnot. You want to move as close to the human as you can. So I have two questions based off of that. First is, could you describe what a model organism is? Sure. So a model organism is just whatever living thing, let's say, that a scientist uses to study their question of interest. And model organisms can range from like single cell organisms like bacteria, even all the way up to human um, studies, you know, clinical trials or, you know, just human-based studies. But a very common one in the biological sciences, there's several common ones, I would say, mouse, um, when you're talking about vertebrates, when you're talking about invertebrates, so animals that don't have, or organisms that don't have bones, um, C. elegans, which is a little worm, as well as Drosophila, which is a fruit fly. Those are also very common uh, model organisms in the biological sciences. 
I've heard a lot about I can't pronounce it, but I've heard a lot about the flies. Um, even Just as yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Even if from um, so I'm a geoarchaeologist. Even when we take like our bioanth classes, they talk about that a lot. So that's very interesting. No, I was just going to say, I, I'm taking a glycobiology class right now. And so I'm like, oh, wow, I do remember <laughs> some of these things. I'm starting to make connections. It's finally working. Right. <laughs> yeah, I had a question yeah. about you both, Janae and um, Dr. Riffith. You both mentioned CRISPR. And I know that's something that has been making around and not just the scientific community and the news that we get, but also just in general news itself. I think even John Oliver talked about CRISPR not too long ago. So could you both kind of give us your takes on like, what is CRISPR? Okay, so it's actually a protein that's derived from a bacterial adaptive immunity system. And so the easiest way I like to explain it is like molecular scissors. So it can go into your DNA based on a location that you tell it and chop out that little piece so you can delete that part of the gene. But also they have like a whole range now where you can actually knock in a portion of a gene. Or they even have like where you can attach a fluorophore to it and it can label the specific locations as well. So it, there's a wide variety now. Nice. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add to that. That's pretty, that's pretty on target. So it's basically a genetic, you know, engineering tool. And we have, you know, plenty of genetic engineering tools, but this one is faster than, than techniques used previously and is allowing for us to then make genetically modified animals in kind of non-traditional, in quotations, uh, model organisms that people might use but don't have a lot of genetic power in the way that all of these transgenic and knockout mice lines do. And I will add one quick fun fact, too, that one of the characters in my series, her name is Dr. Crisp, and I definitely <laughs> named her after CRISPR. Nice. <laughs> because I was thinking, you know, I wanted a fun kind of name that was like almost like an onomatopoeia like something like mm. that that sounded kind of you know fun and explosive <laughs> and so no, i like um, it a lot yeah i got dr crisp is from crisper cool so dr griffith you just mentioned your book the magnificent makers and I was listening to your NPR shortwave interview a few days ago, and it sounds really fascinating. So could you tell our audience, uh, what is the Magnificent Makers and how did that come about? Yeah, so the Magnificent Makers are a science adventure chapter book series that I wrote and published with Random House Children's Books. And the series follows best friends Violet and Pablo on these kind of out of this world science adventures in a magical laboratory called the Maker Maze. And the Maker Maze is run by a kind of kooky and eccentric scientist named Dr. Crisp, who we now know is named after CRISPR. Nice, nice. Um, <laughs> And so each book, when they go, when they get, so they find a riddle that Dr. Chris sends them and they open a portal and are blasted to the maker maze. And when they're in the maker maze, they go on a science challenge that is comprised of three different levels. And each challenge revolves around a specific science topic. Like in the first book, How to Test a Friendship, it's all about ecosystems and food chains. And then in Brain Trouble, book two is the title insinuates, it's all about the brain. Mm -hmm. And then book three is writing sound waves, and that's all about your senses. So each kind of challenge has different activities that they have to go through and, and complete 
um, that are centered around that science topic. And then also each book, because these are, you know, fiction books and they're about the characters and their relationships, they also tie in these kind of, um, I guess you could call them like real life lessons or whatever, you know, you want to call that. Mm. But the first one is about, you know, managing emotions and jealousy and friendships and whatnot. And book two has a kind of teamwork spin to it. Violet isn't, you know, being the best team member. (laughs) (laughs) And as we know, science is definitely a team effort. And so she has to learn that a little bit the hard way in book two. And then in book three, we find that one of the characters that joins Violet and Pablo on their adventure, um, Henry, he actually has uh, something called sensory processing disorder, which made the maker maze a little bit overwhelming for him. And so we learn about people's differences and that they have things that are different about them and those are okay and we just need to accommodate. So that's the that's kind of like the real life lesson or whatever on book three. Am I correct in thinking that there's probably going to be a book four? There is. There's a book four. It's called The Great Germ Hunt. It's actually currently available for pre-order on Amazon and all the different book places. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This one is all about the pandemic. I mean, it's not actually about the pandemic. I I thought that would be too soon. (laughs) It's about germs and, and learning the different kinds of germs and how they're spread and how to not spread them. So they learn about viruses, bacteria. And in this book, um, another character joins Violet and Pablo. Her name is Aria, and she has a prosthetic leg. She's a disabled scientist in training and also is immune compromised. And so we learned that why some people might be even more nervous about germs than others. And that's for very real and important reasons. And again, highlighting the importance of not spreading germs. So that one was a lot of fun to write. I wrote it during the pandemic. <laughs> and so it's a timely novel. Exactly, exactly. It was on my mind. <laughs> a lot of the activities that are done in this book are very similar to things that I do, right? They use a microscope to look at stuff under the microscope. They use an incubator to grow little bacteria colonies on petri dishes filled with agar. And kids are kind of introduced to all of these terms, which I think is cool and fun, you know. I'm really an advocate for, you know, putting putting science stuff out there for kids. Like, they, they can learn what a Petri dish filled with agar is, you know? I feel like that's not something I learned until I was in college, and I could have easily mastered that concept sooner. Um, so, so, yeah. So And then also, book five, Race Through Space, is coming out in about a little bit less than a year, probably like February 2022. But that one's not quite um, out yet. That one's not up for sale just yet. <laughs> oh, I love space. So I'm, I'm ready for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there are going to be black holes in there. <laughs> nice. After doing a lot of these events with kids, when, mm. they, when it comes time for them to ask me questions, they often ask me about black holes. <laughs> I'm not yeah. an astrophysicist. <laughs> so I always feel a little intimidated by whatever I'm responding. But I definitely realized I had to incorporate that into the series because it was something very much on the mind of the average third and fourth grader. Yeah, yeah I, I had a follow-up question to that because I feel like you have to, one, be a good communicator to get these concepts across to young, the younger demographic. But how are you able to like translate these semi-complicated concepts to someone who doesn't 
have any understanding of, of yeah so I think the most important thing that I learned is keeping the scope of the message that you're trying to convey relatively narrow actually so when I was writing for example brain trouble being a neuroscientist I wanted to throw everything I had at it because I was like okay we're gonna talk about this and this and that and you know and it was just too much so and there are also things that kids can understand when they're working like one-on-one with a teacher versus things that they can understand when they're reading independently by themselves And so I had to learn to kind of adjust what I was trying to teach to kind of that level, to the independent seven and eight-year-old reading by themselves. So in Brain Trouble, we couldn't talk about the parts of a neuron. That was, while I'm, I'm very convinced that a child can learn that like in a more dynamic setting, reading by themselves, it probably wasn't really going to stick. And so we talked about, you know, the brain and we didn't break it down into the temporal lobe and the occipital lobe. That was just, again, I clumped it into three broad regions, the cerebrum, the cerebellum and the brainstem. And those are real regions. Like we break the brain down in that way. So there's not a lie there. I just didn't go into all the detail that I could have. And so that's pretty much what I've learned is like, keep it pretty, keep the message that you're trying to convey pretty simple. So we learned in in the great germ hunt, for example, we just talk about bacteria, fungus, and viruses, and trying to understand some of the basic things that separate those different kinds of germs. And then we learned a little bit about the parts of a virus, right? And so like we have the capsid and the spike proteins, you know, and the genetic material and that's it, (laughs) you know, just kind of leaving it right there. And that different viruses cause different kinds of diseases, you know? And then in the, like, for example, in the last um, level in that book, they learn how to stop spreading germs. And they do this little fun experiment where they try and uh, basically not infect a petri dish (laughs) with their germs and so they try you know coughing on it from far away or eventually realize wearing a mask while you're coughing will prevent (laughs) the spread of germs so you know like keeping it really simple trying to again narrow the scope of the content so you can really kind of dig into that content and have the reader internalize it without having to think too hard. You know, that's, I'm not actually writing books so that kids are like, they're studying science. They're really about the adventure that they're going on. And I hope that science is kind of like passively diffusing (laughs) into their brain or something like that. (laughs) A little osmosis. That's good stuff. Exactly. (laughs) But so I do have a question because Dr. Griffith, you're at one spectrum of neuroscience as a person who's gotten their PhD, but Janae, you're still in grad school. So I wanted to get um, kind of both of your perspectives as someone who's going through the PhD process right now and someone who's on the other side. So Janae, can you start off for us? Yeah. So it may seem like a lot at the beginning um, and I'm not, I'm kind of like in a middle to like end range. So there's still probably stuff ahead of me that I don't know about mm-hmm. yet, but there's classes, professional development, um, networking obligations, publishing and research obligations. Honestly, yes, some restless nights, loss of some weekends. So it can feel like a lot sometimes, but in the end, you know that you're working on a project that could help some people with like neurodivergent traits to feel better, or even some diseases, you can help them have an extension on their lives. And just to mention a little bit about like the diversity and inclusion of it. So I was really worried because like my whole entire science adventure, I would look around and I'm like, there's me, myself, and I. Right. And then like sometimes 
there would be like less than a handful. And I'm like, oh my God, there's one more. But actually um, here, I think they're really trying to improve because um, there's um, other minority students in the department. Plus they have these DEI initiatives and we have an African-American and a Hispanic professor. So I think it's slowly improving as well. But yeah, so grad school, I would never say it's easy. I know. <laughs> but it's worth it. So right. it may be difficult, but it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I feel obviously the same <laughs> way. I'm very happy I went to grad school. I'm loving my new position as an assistant professor, PI, running my own lab. And I wouldn't be able to be in this position were it not for grad school. So, so yeah, kind of looking on it, at it from someone who is on the other side, grad school is an interesting time. I think the, I think the challenging part of grad school is not, is one, you're learning in a completely different way than you've ever had to learn before. It's much more auto-directed. You have less guidance on what you're supposed to know and what you're not supposed to know. Oh, and yeah. so figuring, oh yeah, right? <laughs> figuring that out is 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 part of the struggle, right? Almost It's almost like you're learning how to learn. And then on top of it, you're learning really hard stuff. <laughs> and so, and, and then you throw in, that's just like, the classwork in the first couple years, then you also have to learn how to write a grant, then you have to learn how to make a poster, then you have to learn, in, in that you have to learn how to make figures, you know, and then eventually learn how to write a paper. And so it's all of these new learning experiences on top of all of the learning of the te research techniques. So for me, I had to learn how to patch clamp and patch clamp's kind of hard, I love it. It's like the best ever, but it's hard. You know, it took me about almost a year just to probably reliably get data, you know? And so I think that that's the most challenging aspect is that you're constantly being tested and constantly kind of having to push yourself to that next limit. And the what makes it all wonderful, though, is when you come out, I felt so transformed, to be honest, after grad school. I feel like I think about problems in a completely different way. I break them down and I analyze them for better or worse in a way that I didn't before and maybe wasn't able to or at least didn't have the training um, to do that. And so... You know, I would say overall, it's definitely worth it. It's very important. And I think what made my experience as enjoyable as it was, was that I had an excellent PI, very supportive. You know, I, I was so um, kind of full disclosure, right before I started grad school, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and she ended up passing away at the beginning of my fourth year. And so I was dealing with some very intense, you know, family issues and my PI was just so understanding. He knew that I had to fly, uh, my mom was in Baltimore, I was in Chicago. So I was flying out, you know, fairly regularly studying for finals and hospital rooms and all of the horrible stuff, right? And having someone who understood that and gave me the space to deal with that while still, you know, mentoring me and keeping me on track. That's not an easy, you know, balancing issue because you, I needed someone to keep me on track. I couldn't get completely lost in my personal issues. Otherwise I just wouldn't have finished. Right. Um, and so finding an excellent PI is just so, so fundamental. And it really breaks my heart when I see students who I know could do a successful PhD dropping out because they're just in an insupportive and or toxic situation. And so a lot of why I do what I do is to make sure that that happens less and less and less. 
Um, but yeah, if you find yourself a good PI, I feel like anyone can get through grad school with a good PI. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just not so bad. It makes all of those, you know, I've also worked weekends straight for about six months, you know, not nothing, nothing crazy, no 12, 14 hour weekends, but I went in and I put in my six to eight hours just so that I could move things forward a little bit faster. Um, and you know, it's, yeah, it, it, <laughs> I wouldn't say the workload gets any easier. That's for sure. I've never been more busy or stressed in my life than I am oh, no. now, but, <laughs> no. but it's, it's very much worth it. It's very, very much worth it, I think. And, and so I just, I hope, you know, in kind of on the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I too, you know, have throughout my whole life, pretty much have been the only black person in the class, in the PhD program for a while there, you know. I'm fortunate that I am not, believe it or not, the only black faculty member of my department. There's another man from Trinidad, you know, <laughs> holding it down. So <laughs> so that's, you know, a change of pace. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I, and one thing I think that happens is to be honest, it never bothered me. It never, I just kind of was so used to it. And also my mother was white. So I don't know if that played some role in it. Maybe I'm used to kind of navigating white spaces because my family <laughs> Christmas time was a pretty white space. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But what I will say that I do know is that I feel that sometimes when it comes to especially black scientists, we're kind of selected for it, the people who get to my level you can't let institutional racism bother you. You kind of have to let it roll off of your shoulder. You know, several years in a row when I was a member of a training program, a T32, and we had our yearly retreat at this event center, I had the staff come up to me thinking I was the administrator, like the administrative support there, like beeline for me both times. And one, one time uh, my lab mate, who was a white woman, was sitting next to me and she, she was in shock. She couldn't believe how obvious it was that they just thought that I couldn't be this, a scientist there. And they, they weren't trying to be mean. No one was trying to be mean to me, right? It just, it just happened that way. And you learn to brush things off. And if you can't, you leave academia. And that's the kind of message that I'm trying to convey. I don't want it to be that people like me, who for whatever reason I, are able to kind of withstand that, are the only ones who can kind of get to that next level because we're then we're losing brilliant minds along the way. And that's not okay. No, hundred percent agree. That's yeah. That's a really great point. And you said it so well uh, that, you know, I feel like, like being a minority in these spaces can sometimes it's like, you don't realize, especially when you mentioned about like having a good PI who's supportive of you. I feel like when you're not, when you don't come from a family of, of academics, it's hard to know what a healthy relationship looks like with your PI. And so I feel like it's always so important to have those conversations. That's something I ran into, which I'm so lucky I have a really amazing PI, but it's like, when I went into it, I had no idea what what I should be expecting from them and what they are expecting from me and that it is a two-way street and you know all of that. But I guess as a question to go off of that, is for both Janae and Dr. Griffith, um, how you view mental health, because it's a huge aspect, I think, of navigating grad school and the workforce and in general. So Janae, if you want to answer first. I think that while all those is improving, there's still this level of stigma that exists around it. And just, I guess, as like the small things you can do as a neuroscientist, like 
choosing a textbook or changing the wording in the textbook from like abnormal psych to something more or less like something less negative like neurodivergent is even helpful to kind of change that like subconscious like oh mental health is negative and then the other thing I feel like a lot of people don't realize you could be sitting right next to someone dealing with mental health issues but they seem perfectly normal so I think too many people think mental health is looked upon as like the extremes and it's not just that people need to realize that anxiety is very prevalent like and that doesn't mean that you're crazy it just means that you may need something to help decrease that level of anxiety that you have so um just two things overall I think the stigma around it needs to be changed but additionally um access to mental health resources both like in the community and um in like grad school programs that could always use room for improvement. Yeah, for sure. No, mental health is something that we need to protect fiercely because it's one of those things, like when you start to lose it, I feel like it's easier to lose than to regain. And so, you know, again, looking back on my experiences, obviously, I think I think grad school is kind of weird in that it almost, it usually kind of happens you like usually go to grad school during a time in your life when a lot of changes could be happening anyway like naturally you know like in my case my mother got sick parents start to get sick things just start to you get that you're going into adulthood and dealing with all of those adulthood things that you just can't ever avoid and so that kind of happens right and then you're already then you're in grad school <laughs> which is its own you know stressor even yeah. in the best of situations right and so i think the convergence of those two things can make for a difficult time even when it's a great time and even when you're having fun and even when you're in a good lab it can just it can create situations that are kind of unavoidable in their impact on your mental health. And so again, it comes down to having, making sure that you have a good support circle. For me, you know, with the way I look at it with the people in my lab, you know, I, I, I endeavor to find the balance that my PI found where you're kind of helping them push forward so that you don't become stagnant because if you're having a mental health issue, like feeling like you're not doing anything is also not good. So you do kind of need to work on putting that foot in front of the other, but also knowing when you just need a break, like when today you just need to go home and maybe you need to stay home for like two days and then come back and hit the ground running again. And so I think just trying to be as understanding as possible and as supportive as possible and also knowing one's own limitations. Like I can't necessarily play psychologist. I'm not a psychologist, but I can recognize when maybe someone needs a little bit of extra help or would benefit from speaking to somebody that's not me um, or that's not like their family. Like they might need some outside help. I know I definitely sought counseling after my mom passed just because it was too much. I personally couldn't do it on my own. And I was fortunate that the, I was at Northwestern. And so I think, I don't actually know how standard this is. I hope it's fairly standard because they offered, I believe eight or nine free train, um, through free therapy sessions with, um, licensed therapists, contracted by the university and I wanted I knew that I wanted something a little bit more long term I had just been through something that was you know three four years in the making it wasn't going to be undone in nine sessions and they 
referred me to an awesome woman. I had this awesome therapist for a year in grad school and and that was it. And, and I've been, you know, on a good track ever since, but having not recognized and slowed down when I did, who knows, you know, how that would have continued to develop. Um, so yeah, definitely take care of yourself and take care of your mental. Oh, there's nothing like more sacred than mental peace. <laughs> As a mother of a four and two year old, I can right. promise you across all meanings of that, <laughs> it is very, very true. Like, so I protect that very strongly and I encourage, you know, the people in my environment, like my trainees and whatnot to also protect that. Um, and hopefully feel comfortable to be open with me about any issues that they are facing. Also relating to that, I guess, do you have like a daily routine that you tend to follow to maintain a healthy level of productivity? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) I should. I don't. Although I I have more like band-aids. I told you I'm I'm starting as a a new PI. I feel like I'm just taking this year as an L for my like balance. no balance right now it's more so just kind of getting things done without losing my mind and like blocking off time for family and making sure i know that actually we were gonna originally record this on a weekend right Mm -hmm. and i was like you know what guys I think not. I think I need to protect that weekend time if 100% I can. Fair, yeah. so, right? Mm. And so I'm, things like that I try and do. I bought a diffuser. <laughs> that sometimes when I'm like, I need to calm down in the morning, I fill it up with water and like throw in a ton of lavender and just let it <laughs> get some aromatherapy nice. action. But I, if I'm being perfectly honest, right now, I don't really have a lot of balance. I come in, I try and work, you know, as much as I can, get as much as I can done, some days I, I end up kind of almost taking the day off because maybe I put in too much on other days. So I do try and balance by like knowing if I feel like I have a rest period, instead of trying to cram something else in there, I'll try and take that rest or just work on something that maybe doesn't require a lot of brain power, you know? So maybe trying to, if I have emails, for example, that I'm just not caught up on and I have some time, I don't necessarily have to think to respond to them. I just need to sit down and respond to them. I try and do things like that. So those are strategies that I've learned over time is like what I can do when protecting, you know, weekend time as much as I can, which isn't always, but as much as I can. Um, And just kind of, yeah, just knowing what I can handle and working on that when I can, and then working on more intense things when I have the energy to do so. Yeah, Yeah. Janae, did you want to also include maybe your routine as a grad student? (laughs) I'm sure it's all over the place. I agree with Dr. Griffith. I need to probably improve things that I do for my mental health. Like, um, if I had to name some things now, like I didn't do this at the beginning of grad school, but I'm like, I need one day at least in a month to not walk in the lab and just breathe and not worry about the labs. The cells will be okay. <laughs> like, so I try to just set maybe at least once every two months, just a day where I'm just at home with my husband and my cats. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and no cells. Yeah. And that that's helped. Like it may not even seem like a lot, but just that one day to where it's not seven days a week, 365 a day, it's 365 days in a year. It, it does help. And sometimes. 
Yeah. No, I remember that. I just want to loop back around. I remember those days. Like I said, I was just so probably because I was going through it, you know, personally, I just really wanted to be done with grad school. And so I made the conscious decision to work. I didn't do seven days, but I did six days a week for over six months, close to a year for sure. Um, And I didn't do vacation for at least two years or more, like not one, not one vacation because I was going home to see my mom. So yes, I came home for like Christmas and Thanksgiving, but not like relaxing vacation. And so when I finished um, grad school, I knew that I had like this little break and I took some time off and went and stayed, went to Europe. (laughs) I went and visited some friends. I was like, I'm couch surfing the whole time. I don't have coins, I definitely didn't have coins like that then but I could get my ticket and I could get some train tickets and I just bounced around and just kind of took three weeks off and just kind of reset myself so definitely scheduling and if if you're working seven days a week then if you need to take a break on Wednesday it doesn't matter but (laughs) take a break on Wednesday if that's your weekend you know (laughs) right I do have two questions um first question is um, a lot of people at B-Side are starting to get into the writing process because we're trying to start a blog and maybe even a digital magazine somewhere down the line. So we're wondering, um, how does that writing process kind of work for you? Yeah, so writing is all, it, it, it depends a little bit on what I'm writing. And it varies very much, you know, by that. But let's say I'm writing a grant or whatever that I wrote. I just wrote and submitted a grant in February. So I'll take that as an example. Um, I pretty much just the most important thing, and this really actually goes for all writing, is just to start. And it's the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing as a writer, no matter how good of a writer you are, is staring at that blank piece of paper and putting those first <laughs> words on it. Yeah. So, you know, just just getting it done. So for me, when I'm working on a grant, I obviously start on my AIMS page. And that feels kind of doable. It's like a one-page description <laughs> of the grant, you know, and so it feels like, okay, it has these distinct parts, you know, and I tackle it by that. And so when I was writing my grant, I kind of got the AIMS page more or less where I wanted it to be, kind of, not really, but in solid and then I move on to the you know rest of the port of the proposal and it's important for me to get started writing early and again this kind of goes for most things that I do when I'm when I want to be productive it's important for me to be productive before like 10 30 or 11 because if I haven't accomplished much by then my the what I'm going to accomplish for the rest of the day is just never going to be as high if I don't kind of get my mojo going so it's important for me to start early I also need kind of silence to write I wish I could be like the cool kids and like write to Beyonce (laughs) but I can't I can edit to music (laughs) but I cannot write um to music whatsoever Mm -hmm. um and so that'd be the second thing I'll say is that when I get to a point where I'm having difficulty writing, then I go into editing mode because I can usually, it's almost like it engages two different parts of my brain. And I actually enjoy the editing side better than the writing side, to be honest. Um, And so I just try my hardest to get those initial words out. And then when I feel like I've reached my limit for whatever word production I can do that day, then I switch into editing mode and just kind of going back and cleaning things up. You know, I try my hardest to just allow myself to write 
unedited the first time around because I think a lot of people get caught up staring at the screen, right, for like half an hour trying to write that sentence instead of just writing it and moving on with the rest of the thousand sentences you need to write <laughs> and then coming back later with a fresh set of eyes. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of, you know, I kind of get the gears going, get something written, take a break from it as needed. Actually taking a break from what you write is so important. That's all, that's actually why it's really critical to start early when you have a deadline, because you need to be able to step away from it in order to edit it effectively. Um, and definitely get feedback, make sure you have other people, peers, you know, definitely obviously mentors, but definitely have your peers read it as well. People that are scientists, but perhaps not in your field. Those are really people to have um, useful, those, those people can usually provide very useful comments because they have a science lens, but they may not be as invested in the question as you are. So they might need a little bit more convincing for it to sound cool. <laughs> those are the kind of people you really want to read your, <laughs> your grant. Nice, nice. So. Um, this is Be Scientist, and we always ask our guest at the end to tell us how you encourage other people to be scientists. So we're going to start off with besides Secretary Janae. How do you encourage people to be scientists? Um, I think, um, like, do what my mom did. She bought me this little chemistry set, and that really was, like, the first exposure of science I ever got. So the other thing is just be curious about the world around you ask questions don't be afraid to ask anyone questions as well yeah i echo those thoughts i think especially when we're thinking about kids and getting kids excited about science which i think about a lot mm -hmm. um definitely encouraging question asking encouraging them to make stuff up i feel like we don't appreciate how important creativity and like making stuff up is to science like you make up stuff and then you go and try and make that like that's what science is right when we think about all of the genetic advances and we're talking about CRISPR like if we tried to explain CRISPR to somebody 50 years ago they would have thought we were like you know sci-fi freaks <laughs> or right. whatever you know like it's important to just to just kind of allow that un you know un hampered imagination to run wild ask them to make up a, a model organism or something mm -hmm. that they've that no one's ever heard of before and give it superpowers and and then how would those superpowers work that's like you know that's the scientific thinking right encouraging creativity and then asking them to kind of back that creativity up a little bit i think that's a great start I'm trying to remember the quote from the Magic School Bus that Miss Frizzle used to say. I don't know if you guys remember. It was something like, make stuff up and get messy. I think that's kind of what you're saying right now. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a Miss Frizzle quote, but that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Exactly. I don't know if I got it right, but I know it's something like that. Mm -hmm. That is literally how we should be encouraging scientists, because that's what we do as scientists, right? Right. <laughs> like, I think this is a hypothesis, <laughs> and I'm going to go test it and get messy. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really enjoyed this interview. Dr. Dan Griffith, thank you for coming on. Janae, we're going to have to have you on because since you're our secretary, this is I hope this is your debut and not your last episode. So please come back on whenever you feel like it. And to everyone out there, um, please remember to be scientists and we'll catch you next time. Be Scientist is a podcast by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or BSI, a 501c3 nonprofit. B-Scientist is hosted by both Jenna Carpenter, Kim, and B-Side's Research and Development Officer, and Jordan Chapman, Geoarchaeologist and B-Side's President. Music is produced by Delarallo, and lyrics are by Ed Gunner. Special thanks to Michael Mike Castan Marshall and the Plaza Abbey Studios. If you'd like to donate to B-Side, visit our official website, bside.org. That's b-side.org. 
your donation supports the Be Scientist and besides other projects. We couldn't do it without you. So please tune in next time and always be scientists.